Well, good morning, Grace Church. Morning. My name is Joe, and I'm the associate pastor uh, here at Grace. Let me just say, uh, Rich, brother, thank you so much for leading us into worship this morning and for your congregational prayer. I remember thinking, man, that man has a face for TV and a voice for radio. So really appreciate you leading us. Um, if you could, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 7 to 15 today. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 7 to 15. Now, as we turn there, uh, let me just say a word uh, personally uh, for us and our family. Uh, up until this point, we were uh, living in uh, Manhattan in Hell's Kitchen, uh, but this past week, we moved uh, into the parsonage next door in Ridgewood, um, and so uh, we're delighted to be near the church and to be in the life of the community, and to all of you who sent such kind words through messages, and many of you have sent food for us, um, we thank you so much. We've just been overwhelmed uh, by the generosity and the welcome that we received uh, from all of you. So I just wanted to give a word of thanks. And we'll also add thank you also for all the desserts that you sent our way. I'm pretty sure the average blood sugar level of our entire family has skyrocketed uh, since we moved in. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it's been such uh, an amazing time of unpacking and uh, just envisioning our life here uh, locally in the community. Now, with that being said, uh, let, me, let me start us off this way as, uh, before we go into the text. <clears throat> as I was studying uh, this passage, I came across uh, this anecdote that was given by a biblical scholar who wrote a commentary as it pertains to the Lord's Prayer. And uh, this, this, uh, this scholar uh, talks about a time in which he gave a lecture on Christianity shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union in the city of Riga in the country of Latvia. Now, at this point, most of the participants that were sitting in the lecture were between the ages of 25 to 35, which meant that in their formative years going through school, uh, they were indoctrinated into the worldview of atheism. And so naturally, as he was giving the lecture, he became curious as to how these people have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and wanted to find out. And as he was talking to the various participants after the lecture, he recalls this one conversation that he had with a student. And here's what he says. And he begins by asking these questions of how she might have come to faith. Was there a church in your village? I asked. She says, no, the communists closed all of them. Did some saintly grandmother instruct you in the ways of God? No, all the members of my family were atheists. Did you have secret home Bible studies, or was there an underground church in your area? She says, no, none of that. Then came the answer, and she told me the following story. At funerals, we were allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. As a young child, I heard those strange words and had no idea who we were talking to, what the words meant, where they came from, or why we were reciting them. When freedom came at last, I had the opportunity to search for their meaning. When you are in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very bright. For me... The Lord's Prayer was that point of light. And by the time I found its meaning, I was a Christian. 
Now we're going through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew ch uh, chapters 5 uh, through 7. And we get to the second sermon on the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is so powerful, and I would venture to guess that it was life-changing for this individual that was told in this anecdote, because the Lord's Prayer teaches us how to relate to God. And perhaps unique in all of the worldviews that we are, in all the faith systems that we can come across Today, Christianity teaches us to relate to God as Father. And we get to the second half of uh, the Lord's Prayer, where if you recall from last week from Pastor Aaron's sermon, uh, you recall that the Lord's Prayer uh, in the first half uh, is, is addressed to yours, right? is addressed to God. But as we get to the second half, we see that uh, the, the, the overwhelming pronoun is our. And so the first half of the Lord's Prayer is directed outward. And as we get to the second half, we'll see that the prayer is directed inward. Or to put it another way, if the first half of the Lord's Prayer uh, was addressing the grandeur of who God is, as we get to the second half of the Lord's Prayer, we'll see his intimacy the intimacy of God who is with us. But as we'll quickly find, that intimacy with God that is experienced leads to the kind of prayer that is kingdom-centered and world-changing. And so let's get into the text together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 to 15, and I'll read it for us. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. Now, after having read the passage, here are the things that we find about what it means to have God as your Father and what this passage teaches us about the fatherhood of God. We are taught three things. That God the Father is first the one who sustains, and secondly, we'll find that this Father is a Father who forgives, and lastly, we'll find that this Father is a Father who protects, a Father who sustains, forgives, and protects. So let's look at these three points. First, we see that God is a Father who sustains. Now, in verse 11, uh, we find in the second half of the Lord's Prayer, it's starting out by saying, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I want to focus on the word bread here first, because believe it or not, over ch church history, uh, there's been much debate and controversy around exactly what is meant when Jesus teaches us to pray for bread. Now, from the early church fathers perhaps all the way up to the Reformation, there wasn't a consensus on what the word bread meant. Because when you looked at these early church fathers and on, uh, many of these scholars could not fathom 
such an earthly request to be godly in nature. Right, the first half of the Lord's Prayer is all about your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This huge prayer, and they could not fathom a reality in which it would be acceptable for people to pray for a thing that is as earthly as bread. So they said maybe this bread cannot mean bread the way we think of it. Maybe they were talking about, maybe Jesus was talking about the bread of God's word. So give us the Bible. Or others have said, no, this can't just mean earthly bread. So maybe Jesus was referring to the bread of the Eucharist, right? The sacrament in which we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so they tried imbuing to this word bread these spiritual implications. But scholar after scholar since then, and is now widely accepted, that when Jesus says, pray for bread, he means bread. Now, why is this important, and why am I making this point? Because in teaching us to pray for bread, Jesus is showing us that God is a Father who cares about the specific and the material needs of His children. The very specific and material needs of His children. Now, this is not a new issue for Christians in particular, But just generally speaking, if you look out in the world, we find a world that is overly concerned with the physical world, right? This material world is all that we have. And there are articles that are coming out now that where scientists are trying to explain away God and the religious experience uh, uh, through neuroscience even. And even when you look at the kind of secular uh, spirituality that exists out there, you would notice that if you get to the end of what it's trying to achieve, it's trying to serve the physical world, right? Your own physical health or even emotional health that is chalked up to, again, neuroscience. But on the other hand, historically, if you looked at the church, and especially kind of American evangelicalism of the last couple of decades, we find that we've gone the other end, where we are all about the spiritual world at the expense of the material world. And so a lot of times, the way in which we talk about spirituality and Christianity, it's as if our material uh, existence has been erased, Right? That's why historically, within our churches, we haven't been so good with dealing with the trauma and abuse of our congregants, as well as the social injustices that exist in our society. Why? Because we say we're not about those material things, we are going to be about the spiritual things of God. And so the error exists on both sides, And again, this is not a new issue, and it's pronounced today. It's talked about quite a bit, but it's not a new issue. If you go all the way back to the time of St. Augustine, Augustine said said this about the prayer life. He said, ask nothing of God save God himself. And while that may sound devoted and religious and pious, If I can dare disagree with the great St. Augustine, I will do so here because Jesus himself shows us that God is a God who cares deeply about both the spiritual world and the material world. 
Why? Because God is a God who is a good father. Can you imagine my son comes up to me, and it was my son's birthday a little while ago, and he says to me, Daddy, you know what? Uh, for my birthday, I want you to buy me a very specific Lego set. Right? That's what I deeply, deeply want. Can you imagine me going to my son then, saying, my son, my beloved son, I am enough for you. <laughs> that would make me a terrible father, would it not? God is a God who is a good father. And so in order for us to learn this intimate practice of prayer, we're going to need to learn to bring our very specific material needs before him every single day. There's a biblical scholar and theologian named N.T. Wright, and I'm going to be quoting him quite a bit throughout the sermon today. He illustrates this very simple point. He says, it's one thing to pray, God bless everyone, and a whole other thing to pray, please bring peace to the Middle East. One's very general, one is very specific. And let me present to you today that a sign of one's spiritual maturity is by looking at their prayer life and seeing just how specific they get with their needs. Because that is indicative of their understanding of God who is Father. And that is the point that Jesus is making here. And let me ask the question now, is this how you know God? Do you know God as Father? Are you intimate enough with this Father to be very specific in your requests before Him? See, our children have tons of requests for us, and they're very specific. In the morning when I'm cooking my son breakfast, he asks for egg. But he doesn't ask for just any egg. At times, he wants scrambled eggs. Sunny side up, over easy. I, should, I never should have taken my son to a New York City diner. There's like a million different ways to make egg. But these needs are very specific, are they not? And that's what it means to be children of God. And that's what it means to have God as Father. How specific are your requests as you bring them before God? Because here's the thing, if you know God in this way, there's a wonderful release of anxiety from your life. Because as you are doing that, as you pray for your daily bread, this is what you're doing. You're putting into practice what the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, what? Let your requests be made known to God. And what does Paul say? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. The word guard there, literally translated, is garrison. It's as if the peace of God is an armed guard marching around the state of your heart and your mind, right, guarding you from anxiety. Why? How does this happen? Because as you make your request known to the Father in very specific terms, what's happening is that you receive the peace of knowing that God is a Father who delights in listening to your very specific and sometimes very material requests. He is a Father who delights in the details of your life. 
He can't wait for you to present your request to him. He can't wait to answer your prayers. Do you know this piece? Now let me give you a challenge today. As you go back and as you head into your week on a Monday, right? First thing you do in the morning, whether you're opening up your laptop to begin your work or getting your children dressed for the day, let me challenge you. Would you present your specific request to God? Give up your day. What does your schedule look like? Every meeting that you may have, every chore that needs to get done, would you present those requests to God? Because as you do that, you are opening up yourself to be surprised. Right? Let God surprise you with the astounding ways in which he will answer your very specific prayer requests. Either with exactly what you asked for, but even if he does not answer your prayers exactly in the way that you've requested, if you do so, you would realize that he would be answering your prayers in the way you would have wanted them to be, have answered if you had the wisdom and the perspective that God did. You're opening up to yourself up to surprising ways in which the Father will meet your requests before him. And that is what Jesus is teaching us to do as he tells us to pray for our daily bread. So we see that here we have a Father who is willing and eager to sustain us as we present our request to him. But before we move on to the second point, let me just quickly mention this, because uh, it's really easy for us in our individualized society to mean this, uh, to miss this. Notice Jesus says, pray for our daily bread. Pray for our daily bread. I came across this quote from Mother Teresa who said this. <clears throat> I will never forget the night an old gentleman came to our house and said that there was a family with eight children and they had not eaten and could we do something for them so i took some rice and went there the mother took the rice from my hands and listen to what she does here then she divided it into two and went out now i could see the faces of the children shining with hunger and when she came back i asked her where she had gone and she gave me a very simple answer they are hungry also. And they were the family next door, and she knew that they were hungry. Now, I was not surprised that she gave, but I was surprised that she knew. I had not the courage to ask her how long her family had not eaten, but I'm sure it must have been a long time. And yet, she knew. In her suffering, in her terrible bodily suffering, she knew that next door, they were hungry also. See, when you and I, we pray for our daily bread, we not just experience the intimacy of a God who wants to enter into the details of our life, it draws us out to pray the kind of prayer that is kingdom-centered and has the power to change the world. Because when we pray for our daily bread, we're recognizing the hunger that exists in our entire world. 
And what we are doing is we are gathering up our individual experience of anxiety over all that needs to be done to put bread on the table. And we're asking God to not just sustain us as individuals, but we are bringing our needs before the Father who uses our prayers to feed the whole world. And seeing his kingdom of equity and righteousness and wholeness advancing throughout the world. And that, friends, that simple line, give us this day our daily bread, that's how powerful that single line of prayer is. Because we are opening ourselves up to a Father who is willing to sustain us. So first, the Father who sustains. But secondly, we're given a picture of a Father who forgives. And we get to verse 12 where it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now at first glance, right, this is very straightforward in its meaning. Right? As we endeavor to forgive others and live out of the reality of forgiveness that we long to live in, we are asking God to forgive us. Now I have to admit to you at this point, as embarrassing as it may be, the more I read this and the more I meditated on it, the more uh, crystal clear it became to me that this verse, this particular line of prayer doesn't hit me as hard as it should. Because Jesus, as he was presenting this to us as a model for prayer, what he recognized was that our need for forgiveness is just as tangible and just as real as our need for bread. But I have to confess to you, as I'm praying this, I don't feel that need in my own heart. Because to be honest, I don't feel like, I mean, most of the times, I don't feel like such a bad person that is in constant need of forgiveness. I do recognize that as I, it's easier for me to pray for daily bread, I do recognize uh, my need for God's help, but the need for forgiveness, I'm not so sure. And so I really took upon myself to study this, this little verse and to meditate on it until I got some answers out of it. Why is it that I don't feel the need for this prayer, this particular line of prayer. And I found a couple of reasons, and I think that some of you may resonate with some of these reasons. The first reason that I found was that I just lack understanding of myself. Because see, most of us are so busy with our lives uh, to really take time out, to truly take stock, and to take time to examine our moral lives. To ask questions of ourselves. Have I lived in ways that are offensive to God? Have I refused to do the things that God asked me to do? And have I done things that God told me not to do? In the way that I live my life, in the things that I say, in the thoughts that I thought, both in my exterior and interior life, have I lived a life that is pleasing to God? Most of us don't spend the time to take stock of these things, and yet, it is crucial to our life. I remember um, at my old church, um, the former senior pastor, he since uh, stepped away. I remember uh, when I was working in college ministry at the church, we invited him to come and speak to our college students. And he talked about uh, the power of the gospel and the, how amazing it is to experience God's forgiveness. And there was a Q&A time with the students afterwards. And, the, and one of the students asked, said, hey, Pastor, like, honestly, that sounds great. 
uh, but I don't feel it. And so what do I do if I don't really feel the wonder of forgiveness? And so the pastor kind of nodded his head and he said, that's actually a really good question. The kind of question that most Christians are too afraid to answer because after all, forgiveness is at the heart of Christianity. And so for us to admit that we don't really experience it is a tough thing to do. And so what he does is he takes out his wallet and he had this kind of thick, you know, for those of you that watched uh, Jerry Seinfeld, or Seinfeld, George Costanza wallet, and he opens it up and he takes out this little piece of paper, and you can tell it was folded multiple times, and so he opens it up, opens it up, opens it up, and it's, you know, your typical A4 um, size paper. And we could tell something was typed on there, just with no margins, and like font size six, and in front and back, something was typed on it. And he says, you know, do you know what this is? And we're like, what? He says, this is a list of my most besetting sins. And if I don't review this every single day, and if I don't constantly update it, I find my heart growing cold. Cold to the reality of the forgiveness that I have received in Jesus. The kind of forgiveness that drew me near to God. And he says, if I go through this, however, I find myself, my heart warming up to the reality of who God is and what he has done for me. See, friends, it takes a tremendous amount of work for us to experience the beauty of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And that is why Martin Luther, right, the father of the Reformation, when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the church doors in Wittenberg, the first thing that it said on there is that repentance is all of life. And for those who do not understand Christianity, they may say, wow, what a bonkers religion. It's all about self-flagellation. It's all about low self-esteem, right? Figuring out how terrible you are so you have to lean on God as a crutch. Well, that may be so, but that kind of, uh, those words are coming out of the mouth of somebody who does not understand the glory of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus and the power of forgiveness, there's a lack of understanding of myself. But speaking of the power of forgiveness, the second thing I realized was that I also did not understand the power of forgiveness. Uh, there's, a, there's a Marvel uh, TV series that just concluded called Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I don't know how many of y'all have watched it. Uh, it stars two main characters, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And Winter Soldier, uh, in, if you have not watched any of the Marvel movies or comics, uh, Winter Soldier was a super soldier uh, who was once a villain, uh, but by the time we come to this TV show, uh, has become a hero. And he's grappling with his past. And I don't want to give away any uh, spoilers or anything like that, but towards the end, let me just say, uh, as a hero who was once a villain, what he decides to do is, was, is he decides to make amends with his past. And so he visits all of the people that he's hurt, and he goes and admits his wrongdoing to them. And there's a really sweet scene in which you can tell he found release from the guilt of his past by admitting his wrongdoings. And it's a really sweet scene, but here's the problem. That's a cheap 
understanding of what forgiveness is like because there was no sign of reconciliation. It was all about him approaching the people that he offended and hurt and admitting his wrongdoings to them, but there was no sign that reconciliation ever happened. And see, that's the problem with our modern understanding of forgiveness because it's operating out of a therapeutic understanding in which as long as we admit to our wrongdoings, there is no uh, ultimate right or wrong, right? There is no ultimate offending party from whom we need to find forgiveness. And therefore, as long as we release our wrongdoings, then we will find peace. But friends, that is a far cry of the biblical understanding of forgiveness. See, as we see from the parable of the prodigal son, it is not when the prodigal son in his pigsty comes to the realization that he needs to return to the father, that he is freed into a flourishing life. That's not when it happens. You know when it happens. It happens when the father of the prodigal son who was waiting at the doorstep, just waiting for his son to come home, at first sight of his son, he runs to him, throws his arms around him, and they weep together. That is the moment in which they are both free to a flourishing life. See, forgiveness is cheap without reconciliation. And much of our prayers, actually, let me just locate it within myself. I have to admit, much of my prayers is just about admitting and feeling bad for the things that I've done and the wrong that I've done. I don't go all the way in opening myself up for the embracing arms of my Father. And that's why when I read the words, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, it rings cheap in my heart. But can't you see it's because we have not understood the power of forgiveness. But lastly, let me just mention this real quick. I'll also suggest that in my own heart, it's perhaps because I have a lack of understanding in the collective nature of forgiveness. And I want to hammer this home again. Notice it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here again, let me quote N.T. Wright, who says this. He says, people seldom get beyond the small-scale, private forgiveness of small-scale, private sins. They hope God will forgive their peccadillos, and they try at least to smile benignly on their neighbor's follies. And he goes on to say that, friends, is not forgiveness. That's tolerance. And tolerance, as much as it's brought up in the world today, is weak. What God is after is not mere tolerance. He's after forgiveness and reconciliation. And let me just say here, just as asking for our daily bread is really a window into this kind of world-changing kingdom prayer, the same is here as well as we ask for the forgiveness of our, our debts. You see how powerful this can be? As we repent of our collective sins, past and present, of all that keeps us apart, whether it be the sin of systemic racism, whether it be that of classism, whether it be that of sexism, 
as we learn to repent of our collective sins, as we ask God to forgive us our debts, and as a people, as we learn to extend forgiveness to the people, do you see that that has the power to change the world? Why? Because we are bringing our debt before the Father who is not just waiting with his arms folded to see if we come clean. We have a Father who, like the father of the prodigal son, is waiting at the door for any sign of repentance from his children because he is eager to shower us with the kind of forgiving, restoring love that has the power to not just restore our individual souls, but as his children do so, that is willing to give the kind of restorative power that has the ability to change the world. Do you see the magnitude of the prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because in God we have a father who is willing not just willing eager to forgive we have a father who sustains we have a father who forgives but lastly in God we find that he is a father who protects it's in verse 13 lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now this line of prayer is really directly addressing the fear all of us may have of evil. Now at this point, I can't think of this past year uh, for myself and my family. Many of you may be aware uh, with the pandemic there's been a rise of violence against Asian Americans. We felt that in many ways as a family, especially even from the beginning of the pandemic. But I have to say, I'm, I never really felt this fear of evil so acutely as we did at the end of March. Some of you may be familiar with the incident that happened with an Asian-American named woman named uh, Vilma Kari, who was brutally attacked uh, right in front of a, an apartment building in Hell's Kitchen. And that apartment building actually was just a couple of blocks down, maybe f less than five minute walk from my own apartment. And it really hit home for us. And this rising sense of fear against the evils of racism really kind of boiled over. And to be honest with you, for a couple of days afterward, I remember, especially if I was walking out of my apartment at night, I found myself putting on my hoodie and putting on my mask, constantly looking around me to see if anybody was following me. And I tried not to make eye contact with anybody that was passing me. And I told my children, we're not going outside. Now, when we talk about the sphere of evil, the real sense of evil that exists in the world, when I bring this up in Christian communities, I get different uh, reactions. I fall into three categories. There's a camp, there's a group of people uh, in Christian communities when evil is talked about that say, you know what, let's not focus on that. You know, let, we, you know, we can acknowledge it exists, but hey, let's talk about the goodness of who God is. Right? The kind of attitude that says, let's pretend it doesn't exist. And we have a second group who gets really depressed. And they only want to talk about it. Wallow in the evils of the world. 
And we have a third group of Christians that I often talk to. That's all about, you know what? There's a real problem with injustice in our society. Let's fight against it. And it's all fight, fight, fight. As if it all depends on us. As if the answer resides in us. And let's think about it this way, right? The Lord's Prayer teaches us to relate to God as fathers. So let's uh, put this picture forth, right? Fathers, when children come to them in agony, right, at the face of evil, let's say they're bullied, and so they come to the father with their fear of evil. Likewise, they can do this. They can distract the kids, right, by taking them to an amusement park or buying them a huge present so that they feel better about it. Right? That's just a way of distracting them from the presence of evil, pretending it does not exist. But here's the problem. They're going to face another instance in which there is evil. It is not equipping the children to face evil well. The second type, and this is where I tend to fall if I'm being honest as a father, when in the face of agony over the fear of evil, right, when the child comes running to the father, a father can wallow in depression Say, you know what? That stinks. Well-intentioned, of course, out of their love for their children, but they take on that depression and they get depressed themselves. Now, that leads to the kind of defeatist mentality for our children that does not serve them well, does it? And the last kind, and I fall into this camp as well, (laughs) guess I'm not such a great father. When your children come to you over the fear of evil, a father says, who hurt you? Who hurt you? Let's go hurt him back. Or say, you know what? No, 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 I'm going to raise you as karate kid. Let's go. You fight back. Now, that may work well in movies, and it may be inspirational, but that's not equipping, equipping them well either, because we know that there are evils in this world that we simply cannot handle ourselves. But here's what Jesus does for us. He leads us to a place in which we have to recognize that evil exists. He teaches us, if at all possible, for us to avoid it. But once we are faced with it, he illustrates for us that we need deliverance at the end of the day. And we'll find that he is the one who will address it himself. So let's break that, break that down for a little bit as we close. The existence of evil, right? Uh, uh, Jesus teaches us, right, and Christianity tells us that evil exists in the world and we cannot sidestep the issue. And the evil is not just uh, out there in the world, but it tells us that evil exists and is active within each and every single one of us. Now, we can look to shield ourselves from it, right? In the case of my family, having moved out of Manhattan literally into the suburbs, we literally left the city where people aren't in such close proximity with one another, thereby minimizing the chances of being victims of such violence. Others of us may do it with our wealth. Others of us may try to shield our children from the presence of evil, maybe by homeschooling them or sending them to Christian schools. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But as much as we try to shield ourselves from the evil out there, Bible teaches us that evil exists in here as well. And Jesus teaches us to, once we recognize it, to cry out for deliverance. Again, not just individually, but corporately as well. 
And Jesus teaches us that the hard cry of the people of God is for God to bring his equitable, righteous, and just kingdom to bear as he protects us from evil. See, this is the kind of thing that Jesus does as he urges his disciples to pray if you look towards the end of his life in Matthew 26. Remember that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is what Jesus understood, that there was a whirlwind of evil that was headed his way. Right? The moment when he was going to the cross, the moment his entire life was pointing towards. And as he heads into this moment, he knows that his disciples, who are going to get front row seat to the suffering that he's about to endure, he fears that his disciples will be swept up and sucked into the whirlwind of evil themselves. And that's why he tells them to watch and pray. But here's the irony. The disciples who are so tired that they could not stay awake to pray, are indeed preserved to the end, save for the betrayer. We see the disciples there then go on to experience the forgiveness of Jesus and to live remarkable lives, even though they failed in their prayer. But what happened to Jesus, the only one who faithfully prayed this prayer that night, Let this cup pass from me. His way of saying, protect me from evil. What was the answer that was given to him by the Father? No, I will not. The Father allowed the bully to have his way with the Son all the way to the end. Why? Because God in his wisdom, knew that the only way for evil to be dealt with decisively and the way he was going to reclaim and redeem his children for himself was for Jesus the Son to be sucked into the whirlwind of evil himself, to bear the weight upon his shoulders and to die from it. And that was a way in which he was going to deal with evil in the world. See, Jesus' vocation was unique. If you look at John chapter 13, he tells Simon Peter, he says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Right? Jesus was alone in having the task of taking on the evils of the world, but by doing so on the cross, he was reversing the trajectory of history, and that was one for us on the cross. And that's why because of Jesus, we can be surrounded by evil and not fear. Right, let me just say this real quick. Let me ask you when you go home to meditate on Psalm chapter 23, especially the later verses that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And once we learn of this protection, like the disciples, out of confidence and surety, we will be able to enter into the suffering of others, to be Jesus' followers, to be little Christ, to enter into the suffering of others, 
to suffer with them, to suffer for them, and thereby with our very bodies proclaiming the message of the gospel that tells them that there is a father that is waiting for them on the doorstep, that with one step towards them, that he will run towards them, throw his arms around them. And so Grace Church, in closing, let me just say, will you experience the, the, the extravagance of what God the Father has in store for you as we learn this prayer together, not just so that our lives are restored individually, but for the restoration of the world around us. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you for um, just the riches of what it means to be called your children. And Father, as we um, come before you learning to pray these prayers, we ask that you would change us to lean on you as children do with their fathers. And, and God, we pray that as we learn to be children sitting at the feet of the Father, we pray that you will strengthen us to be like our older brother, Jesus Christ, to move out into this world that is filled with suffering, to enter into their suffering, to bring the message of restoration and healing to a broken world. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.